Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Becky Epanchin-Neal, a senior fellow here at RFF. Becky's research focuses on ecosystem management, particularly on understanding how human behavior affects ecological resources and identifying strategies to improve that ecosystem management. Much of her work has focused on invasive species, including strategies to control established invaders, improvement of monitoring strategies, and cooperative management. Invasive species is in fact the topic of our discussion today, and in particular, we're going to be talking about a new paper that Becky co-authored with RFF colleagues Alexandra Thompson and Tyler Treacle on public contributions to early detection of new invasive pests. We'll talk about how citizens have a critical role to play in identifying emerging threats from invasive species, and how Becky and her team worked to quantify the public contribution to pest detection. Whoever thought that talking about finding weird bugs in your backyard could be so interesting? Stay with us. Becky, I am so glad we're at long last hosting you here on Resources Radio. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, but before we talk about invasive species and your new study in particular, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be interested in environmental economics as a field of study? Sure. It's really great to be here, Kristen. It's uh, nice to finally be on Resources Radio and to, uh, yeah, get to be a guest here. So thank you. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of funny because I actually discovered environmental economics pretty late in life. I actually thought I was going to be an entomologist. I was a nerdy little kindergartner, thought I'd be an entomologist when I grew up. I used to spend all of my time starting off in Southern California. We lived in you know, suburban LA, and I used to spend my time gathering up insects and grasshoppers and butterflies in the backyard and bring them inside to study them. And I literally would bring <laughs> alive them in. Alive or dead? <laughs> oh, alive. I'd keep okay. them, I'd feed them, I'd take care of them, and then I'd let them go again. And uh, later that moved on to salamanders and frogs and voles and turtles. Um, and uh, when I was in uh, undergrad, I was, you know, originally thought I was going to be pre-med. I loved systems and thinking about systems and how to fix them. And so biological systems, people, you know, people are systems. <laughs> and so... Um, but then I actually took a class called Ecosystems of California. I was like, oh my gosh, like, but not only is this amazing stuff, but this is also here is somebody who's like a famous ecologist and this is his job to study ecosystems. I was like, well, this is, I, I, I can study ecosystems. I can be an ecologist. Um, but I declared earth systems as my major. And one of the requirements for it was to take an environmental economics class. And I actually was a kind of stubborn, uh, ecologist, I guess, at that point, <laughs> where um, I kind of thought economics was sort of the source of all of the world's problems, all of the environmental challenges, and I actually didn't want anything to do with it. And so um, I had never had an economics course. So I actually postponed it until spring quarter of my senior year. And then I took this class that just like opened up a whole new way of understanding interactions between people and natural systems and how people make decisions and why uh, decisions and markets can lead to environmental degradation. And not only that, but like that there's this whole set of tools and economic tools, policy tools for helping address those. And so all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, how in the world was I, did I push this <laughs> off till, you know, last quarter of my senior year? Um, I went on then to go have a, you know, study butterflies for my master's. So kind of getting that entomologist 
uh, piece in, but all along taking uh, economics courses along the way. And so I ended up uh, deciding to pursue my PhD in environmental natural resource economics. And I continue to link uh, ecology and economics to try to understand systems, think about how to manage systems and design policies to help uh, kind of remedy some of the environmental challenges that we face. Wow. Okay. That's great. And I'm, as usual, a little embarrassed that I didn't know nearly as much of that as I should have given how long we've worked together, but that was fascinating. So thanks for that introduction. I learned something too. So today we're here in particular to talk about some new research that you undertook with two other RFF colleagues, um, Alex Thompson and Tyler Treacle. And the research is about methods of detecting invasive species. I know invasive species is an issue that you've looked at a lot. And uh, so I wanted to start with one, or at least one, stage setting question. So to kick things off, let me, let me ask about the scale of the problem. So why do countries care about invasive species in both environmental and economic terms? And, and how big a problem are we talking about? I know those, those are those are very broad broad questions, but anything that you sort of any light that you can shed on um, why invasive species matter would be would be great. Yeah, maybe I'm just going to start off with kind of what are we talking about when we're talking about invasive species? Some people like that term, some people don't. But essentially, what we're thinking about here is you know non-native species, species that are introduced from one region of the world to another region, where they end up causing ecological, economic harm, harm to human health. And in general, this is because, you know, species in their native range, they evolved for millennia, you know, in the context of these species and these species interactions. But when you take them out of that system, you put them in a new system, they may lack predators or competitors or uh, disease that might have kept their populations in check, for example. And you're putting them in a system of species that aren't used to interacting with those species. Um, and so it's in some cases, not all, and in fact, it's, you know, not necessarily even a large proportion of those species, end up being really problematic in those new systems. They end up reproducing and spreading and causing impacts on the landscape. And in particular, they can cause ecological harm. As I mentioned, they you know, don't necessarily fit right in the system and end up, you know, they're actually cited as being a source of imperilment for about two-thirds of the species listed under the U.S. Endangered Species Act. So they can cause a lot of harm to species. Um, for example, uh, emerald ash borer is a species that was introduced likely through wood packaging material coming in with trade and has spread across the East Coast and it's decimating ash trees. It harbors a pathogen that kills the ash. And so we're seeing near functional extinction of ash trees. Um, in addition to, for example, the loss of ecosystem services associated with those uh, trees, loss of wood for uh, making baseball bats, and um, also causing a lot of expenditures as different communities and homeowners are needing to remove dead ash trees from their yards uh, to avoid the hazard of them potentially falling on people because they actually fall quite easily <laughs> once they die. But so we have these invasive species can disrupt systems in these ways. You know, cheatgrass is, um, is an example of an invasive grass introduced out west where it changes the entire fire cycle in a region that experienced fire cycles every 40 to 70 years now may burn, you know, every few years and is converted from a shrub perennial grassland to an annual grassland. And so you lose the benefits for livestock forage for native species, and you have the added costs of fire suppression and air quality impacts from fires. So you have these big ecosystem changes. They also going to impact crops. Um, you have both um, direct impacts upon crops where you might have, uh, you know, we see with, for example, citrus greening is uh, um, caused by a pathogen 
that is spread also by non-native insect and it's infecting citrus across, uh, for example, in Florida and spreading to Texas and essentially makes the fruit bitter and often unsellable, causing massive impacts upon the citrus industry. And right now, a lot of work trying to keep it out of California, where it also uh, could cause severe impacts. And so you have these impacts upon crops, but then also potential trade consequences is countries say, you know, if you have this particular pest there, and we don't want it, you know, it's going to impact trade or increase the costs of trade. And so there's, you know, impacts upon, you know, the species, the ecosystems, there's impacts on human health, you know, uh, for example, with mosquitoes uh, vectoring diseases. And so, you know, all in all, estimates have put, you know, the annual impacts of invasive species, you know, around a $160 billion a year. And, you know, that potentially could be a gross underestimate that's, you know, accounting for damages and control costs. But there's many different values that we can't, you know, we're still that aren't necessarily easily quantified, for example, in the marketplace. And so, but it just gives a sense, you know, there's also studies that have shown it, you know, it's caused up to about 12% um, of GDP impacts in some developed countries. So, I mean, these are non-negligible Right, non-trivial numbers. Yeah, <laughs> non-trivial yeah. numbers. So. Okay. Well, and it sounds like, you know, I, one of the main interfaces here is between countries, right? So we, when we talk about trade and, and whether products can come in from one place or go out from another, and, and sort of, I, I'm sure every country sort of faces different invasions, if you will, depending on their own histories, what trade has looked like in the past, what their climates can or cannot um, allow to flourish, what their predator populations look like. So so it sounds like every country probably faces this to some degree, but would you say that some countries are sort of more invested in addressing invasive species than others, either at the kind of, um, you know, control on the outflow end or the dealing with the problem once it's, once it's happening internally? And, and if so, you know, why, why those differences? Yeah, well, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the hammer. The, um, in terms of just thinking about, you have these different histories and these different contexts in which invasions are occurring. And so, you know, some countries might be more susceptible because of the resources that they have at risk or the climate um, suitability. But also, we just have different histories in terms of how long different countries have been engaged in trade and travel and you know, the primary means by which species are moved around is through trade, travel, historically human migration. And um, so you have these different histories at play. So countries that have had, you know, trade and imports for, you know, a particularly long time, actually, uh, those countries often have some of the highest impacts domestically of established invasions, because you know, they've been here for a while, they've had a chance to spread and they're causing impacts. Um, but those countries also are some of the ones that might be best prepared to set up policies and have the capacity, the resources to be able to um, develop policy to, you know, prevent the introduction of new invasions, you know, whether it's through doing risk assessments of potential commodities that might be being brought in or doing inspections at the border um, of commodities coming in. Um, importantly, you know, invasive species are introduced both intentionally and unintentionally. Not they are introduced intentionally to become invasive, but they're brought in as pets, brought in as plants, um, and then can escape into the wild. Um, but a lot of the developing countries, uh, 
some of them have had less experience, but they also might be more at risk because of their dependence upon, for example, natural resources in many cases, and now are facing increasing trade and increasing travel. And thus, in fact, with the uh, World Trade Organization Agreement on the application of sanitary and phytosanitary measures, like this is the big uh, agreement between nations about how to manage uh, invasive species, uh, particularly plant pests in trade, there is um, an agreement that uh, signatories should help facilitate biosecurity technical assistance to developing countries. And this is like both to help protect those countries, but it also is, in some ways, it's self-serving in that the more that an invasive species spreads, the more sources there are for future and subsequent spread, just like we've seen with COVID, unfortunately. Um, and so um, I think there's a big role to play there. But yes, there's a lot of differences across countries in terms of both their capacity and uh, kind of their political willingness to put in different um, stringencies for protections. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'd be, even as you're talking, this makes me wonder of, about if there's going to be some blip in the data for 2020, um, given how given how much less global movement there was in 2020 compared to other years. I'm not sure that really applies to trade to the same degree, but certainly sort of people movement and things like that. I, I, I'd be curious if this, if that shows up, you know, 20 years in the future, but, um, but for now, yeah, just understanding that most of the flow does happen in the context of trade, I think is a really good, a really good stage setting. So thank you. Can, can I actually just make one comment on that? You know, because, you know, we have these different pathways and I talked about trade and travel and historically most of the trade is, you know, big ships, cargo ships coming in, but increasingly we have so much trade that's going on individual parcels you go on whatever your favorite online vendor is and you can order so many different things that then may be shipped directly from another country and those you know all the commodities that are coming in through major ports are being subject to inspection and subject to different policies but things this direct to consumer purchasing actually is a potential growing and much harder to manage pathway for invasive species. And that's big accelerated. <laughs> oh boy. Always something new to keep on top of, I guess. But um, Okay. So let's get into this new research. And um, so you and your team looked at detection methods. So that is, you know, how people identify invasive species populations in the first place. And I, I guess I do want to clarify one thing. Um, so this is particularly focused at early detection before spread has, has widely occurred. And is it focused on the U.S. as well? Is that kind of the, or yes, were you yes. looking at multiple countries? Um, no, the, I mean, the primary, all of our data collection and analysis was focused on the U.S., but we then did do some comparisons with uh, data from New Zealand. Ah, excellent. Oh, New Zealand. There's a place that, yeah, I hope nothing invades that wonderful place so it stays just as it is. But, um, okay, so what are what are the main channels by which populations of invasive species are identified at these early stages? How do people find them? Yeah, I mean, we're really, I just want to say the reason why we're really interested in understanding how different species were detected is because Early detection is so key for helping minimize their long-term impacts. You know, just any listeners who aren't haven't really thought about it. The earlier you detect something, the more likely you are either to be able to eradicate it right off the bat or help slow its spread or conduct new research to figure out ways to help mitigate impacts. So early detection is really key. And, you know, of course, we prefer to prevent their introduction. Detecting them early is really important. And there's actually a lot of programs in place um, 
you know, different agency programs, you know, to help detect invasive species. But we wanted to know what are all these different sources. And so, you know, like I said, you know, there are a lot of agency-based programs, whether it's commodities surveys or sniffer dogs at uh, postal uh, distribution centers or, um, you know, conducting uh, surveys at high-risk sites and around ports. You know, those are all means for uh, agency-based detections, you know, Forest Service deploys traps in their forests to, you know, around campgrounds, for example, to try to detect new pests. And so you have those sort of um, uh, kind of active formal programs for invasive species detection. We also have researchers and extension specialists who do, uh, you know, come across pests or conduct pest surveys as part of their, you know, work. Um the other piece that we are interested in is trying to understand the role of the public and industry. So these, you know, what we call in the study independent sources. These are sources who may detect an invasive species, but that's not specifically their job. And that's not necessarily what they're you know, specifically going out to do, but they are contributing to the early detection of invasive species. And so that can include uh, members of the public, you know, a homeowner. It can include a nursery operator, a farmer. You know, there's a whole range of folks who can contribute to detecting uh, new invasive species. Um, an example that has been in the news a lot in terms of thinking about public detections is the Asian giant hornet. I think uh, people might have heard of it as the murder hornet and uh but this was discovered by somebody you know stepping out on their front porch and seeing this giant crazy looking hornet <laughs> that and they actually recognized it from a youtube video they had seen about like amazing creatures of the i might not have the story quite right but um ended up calling you know local authorities and you know has ended up leading to a lot of efforts across uh, washington state and oregon survey programs trying to keep the species from establishing Fascinating. I'm pretty sure that if I had stepped out on my front porch and seen something new and murdery looking, <laughs> I'm not sure I would have taken the time to do that. So kudos to that person for for knowing enough and for um, and for taking the right steps. And and I hope we can come back to that at the end about sort of um, how you empower people like this. But but first of all, I did want to ask too. I know you and Alex and Tyler. Well, conducting this research required the three of you to really think about data sets in some pretty novel ways to really help shed light on how this early detection is happening. So can you say a little bit about from where you pulled the data and how you ended up kind of combining it in these new ways? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why this question hadn't been answered previously was not because people weren't interested in it, is that there hasn't been data that was specifically collected for this purpose. You know, it's, there's a lot of investments have been made in terms of putting together databases um, for keeping track of pest detections in traps and part of these, uh, you know, more active survey programs. You know, there's data about uh, things that are detected or the outcomes of inspections of agricultural imports at the border. But, you know, this, you know, when trying to think about this much broader array you know, where things can be detected across any of the 50 states and you have different levels. Um, the data, you know, just hasn't been compiled in this way. And in addition, you know, like there are so many species that are, you know, there are many non-native species established in the U.S. And what we're particularly interested in is trying to understand the detection sources for those that might uh, pose harm, you know, those that could be pests, those that could impact crops or forests. And so ended up, 
anytime a new pest is either detected in the U.S. or there's a significant concern about it being detected in the U.S. is that uh, the APHIS, the Animal Plant and Health Inspection Service, ends up uh, bringing together a new pest advisory group to provide expertise about and develop a report about the species, providing information about you know where it might be able to survive, the hosts it might affect, um, you know if it's been detected. Uh, Kind of where it was first detected, what is it, you know the understanding of its potential current distribution, how it might be controlled, and it's essentially gathering all the information you might need for making a real quick first initial assessment about what the next step should be. And I realized that that could potentially have information about uh, sources of detection. And in fact, um, it turns out that in many of those reports, there was a sentence or two, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, uh, about the way in which um, the species had first been detected. And so um, we actually ended up combing, um, you know, in particular, uh, Tyler and Alex, and also another RA who had worked on this project early on, uh, Jessica Blakely, had ended up you know, spending a lot of time in these reports and these databases trying to assemble these sources of detection. And one of the hard parts is, you know, it might say, well, we, you know, heard about this from Washington State. But the question is, you know, was it the Department of Ag that discovered it? Or were they responding to the report from somebody who saw it in their backyard? And so it took a lot of detective work trying to sort out what was the actual initial source what was the first detection that brought attention to it you know and then that information eventually flowed through different pathways to lead to this npag and so um, we gathered the data from there and um, kind of a little bit of sleuthing from there and then also gathered a lot of information about um, the distribution of the pest the what the report said about potential impacts the um, you know about the type of the pest the setting in which it was first discovered and so we are trying to bring all of these data together to try to understand, you know, not only what are the relative contributions of these different sources, but, you know, are there differences in the types of species that are being detected by these different sources? So interesting. So fascinating. Okay, let's talk findings then. Um, so what did you learn about the, what did you and the team discover <laughs> as the good sleuthing, by the way, that's the perfect word for it, <laughs> through all your sleuthing, what did you learn about kind of the importance of the various detection channels? Um, does their relative importance, you know, differ by region of the country or even by country? I know you did this comparison between the US and New Zealand. So tell me a little bit about what you found. Yeah. So, I mean, for starters, you know, what we found is that actually each of these different pathways or these sources that I mentioned before, these agency detections, the researcher extension, and the independent sources, including industry and uh, the general public, all of those end up contributing substantially to detections of new invasive species. And, you know, in fact, you know, we found that between probably about a third and a little over a half were first detected through agency surveys of one type or another. Um, and uh, about uh, 8 to 17% were attributed to research or extension specialists. But more than a quarter, and anywhere from 27% to 60% of first detections were actually first detected by these independent sources. So the uh, agricultural operators, nursery operators, but in particular, the largest proportion was detected by the general public, so members of the community, homeowners, you know, so they're playing a substantial role. And um, 
not only that, but the public, so these members of the community, detected the kind of full suite of different pest types. So they weren't detecting a different, you know, like only insects or only diseases. You know, they were detecting a similar suite of species as the agency surveys, for example. And um, they also were detecting high impact pests. So, you know, I had no idea whether they'd be more likely to detect low impact pests versus, you know, just something that happened to be interesting. But in fact, we found that members of the public discovered, you know, at least 31% of the pests that were thought to be likely to cause high economic or environmental uh, costs uh, to society. So serving a really important role there. And another one was I thought that maybe the public might not detect things as early because they're not specifically looking for things. But um, the results suggested that the public was also comparable uh, with agency-led surveys in terms of detecting narrowly distributed pests. So in other words, that early detection piece. But I have to caveat that in the sense that, you know, these are, you know, species which are being detected by agencies are, you know, you have traps, you have survey programs, and thus you might actually have a better idea about their distribution, whereas something detected by the public, you may just not know yet how widely. So that's uh, an area for future investigation. Um, when we did our comparison uh, between our data set and the data uh, from New Zealand, we saw that a higher proportion of new pests are detected by uh, independent sources in New Zealand than in the U.S. But in a sense, that's not too surprising. They actually have a law in place that requires that members of the public report new pests that they detect. You know, as an island nation, they're very concerned about invasive species. People could grow up and learn about them in school from a very young age. And so, um, and there's you know a lot of investments in terms of protecting the economy and the natural systems within New Zealand. So that's that's actually a perfect lead in to the kind of the the last substantive question that I wanted to ask you, which was you know given first of all this is fascinating. <laughs> Second of all, um, given the importance of this independent source detection um, as you know as a method of detection. First of all, I'm very proud to be a member of the public right now, even though, again, I'm not sure I'd be really well qualified to do this, but but it sounds like there are some ways, at least in which the government of New Zealand has really, um, you know, encouraged people and in, even mandated people to, to encourage this independent source detection. Um, but what do we do here in the U.S.? Are there other ways in which um, the government can support more of these citizen science efforts? Are there training options? What what would allow this to really become an even more robust early detection system here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of opportunities to further um, leverage the contributions of the public. Um, I think in particular, just making it easier if a member of the public finds something that's unusual reducing the barriers to picking up the phone and making that phone call. You know, I recommend anybody, you know, a lot of states have hotlines that can be called. Uh, if you, you can, you know, look, do a little internet search and look for that. Um, you, you know, anybody can reach out to their local extension office and usually somebody there can help put you in contact with who could, you know, come out and see what it is that you're uh, looking at. Um I think there's a lot of differences between programs. Here we're focused on initial detections of an invasive species. And 
I think that you could do a lot more targeted uh, outreach in cases where there's specific pests that you might be concerned about. For example, in New Zealand, they're very worried about brown marmorated stink bug. And so there's a lot of awareness program developed around that. And so when there's specific pests, it kind of helps with the targeting of the messaging um, and, you know, similar to when the public's playing a role in managing a species that's already established and spreading. And so the, the public plays really important roles in those contexts as well. Um, so I, th I would say, you know, part of it is making those reporting channels very clear. Increasingly, there's a lot of um, apps, uh, phone apps that can be used. Um, iNaturalist is a, it's not an invasive species app. Uh, specifically, but it's one where you can upload pictures of uh, different uh, species that you find and people online will help you identify them. And I've seen examples there where if somebody takes a picture of something and it turns out that it's a non-native species, people will actually send a message saying, hey, you should contact you know, huh. this phone number and mm -hmm. help facilitate. And so I actually think there's also a huge role for um, agencies to better leverage sources like iNaturalist and other online apps, even existing online apps, and incorporating those as part of their surveillance system, you know, referencing them both, you know, as another source besides the traps and the actual physical surveys they do on the ground. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So interesting. I think another thing, of course, that I'm reminded of is I know enough about sort of your, your family activities to know that you spend a lot of time with your kids outside, mm -hmm. your kids and your husband outside. Yes. And so, um, you know, it seems like part of this too is just in order to know when something is abnormal, you kind of have to know what normal looks like. And so just a reminder for all of us to engage with the outdoors so that we can be better citizen scientists in figuring out what's supposed to be there and maybe what's not. So, yeah, that's actually yeah. why I think that sometimes the public is so good, you know, and why a lot of the detections by the public took place in, for example, residential areas. You go out in your yard, you're working in your garden, you see it every day. If you have that sort of interaction, even with, you know, your yard, uh, you know, you notice differences. And it's a little bit different than, you know, if you're, you know, just out in a forest and you see a tree that's a disease, you might not, that could have been around for a while, but you notice sure. differences in the places that you're really familiar with. And those are particularly important to uh, pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, Becky, this has been so interesting. And I really, I really appreciate your coming on to talk to our listeners about this very interesting work. So um, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time to sort of talk about the research. And so I want to close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Um, so let me ask you, what's on the top of your stack, whether it might be you know, a book, an article, something else to listen to that you would recommend to our, our wonderful listeners? Can I cheat and give two quick ones? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. I got to give a podcast. So this is, you know, I think along with resources, radio, this is one of those podcasts that can help um, kind of just provide a different light and perspective on understanding decisions and patterns that we see in the environment and perhaps even how to change it. And that's Hidden Brain. I can't recall if any of the other guests have brought that up, but it's really focusing on unconscious patterns that influence human behavior and the ways that... Um, those can influence uh, outcomes in society, like how we might deviate from how we do what's necessarily in our best interest or best interest from society. And so some of the ways in, you know, they bring on uh, behavioral economists and psychologists and sociologists, philosophers. Um, I've had a lot of fun with that. But I also have been doing a lot of reading with my kids over um, the 
pandemic in particular, and it's uh, probably more reading with my kids. So when I look at the top of the stack, it's the big pile of books that we have to read. And we've been having a lot of fun with that. Um, but right now we're on a big Austin Oslon kick. Um, and so uh, he's sort of a, he's a young adult writer um, out of Flagstaff. He has a, um, writes a lot of uh, kind of like science fiction adventure, young adult. And um, one of the things that I really like is uh, in all the adventure, he often pays a lot of attention to the natural world. And so it's not the center of the of some of his books. It's not the center of it. But you'll just notice details about the species or species interactions. Or we're reading one of the Turbonauts books, and it's about uh, having to decontaminate the boats before they go in the water down in uh, you know, Prue, because you don't want to introduce invasive species. But he has co-authored the top of the stack right now for with my daughter is The Endangered, which is a book he co-wrote with Philippe Cousteau. And it's about these superhero endangered species trying to save uh, species from climate change and habitat degradation. And my son, it was kind of the book that pushed him from being a reluctant reader to an avid reader during. Um, and so... Right now, my daughter, who's six, and I are about to sit down and start reading that one because I haven't read it yet. Awesome. Okay. Well, fun for the whole family. That's great. We don't get too many family top of the stack recommendations. So that's awesome. That's a great way to end. So Becky, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. And I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been really fun. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.